the stream. So I said it earlier, but I think it's written now. Midweek roast night sounds like it's. In, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, well, well, happy Palm Sunday, ushering in Holy Week. Um, a couple things I wanted to to put out there. Um, love your building day yesterday. That was pretty cool. That was pretty cool. Look around at the the mul mulching mulchery. What do you call it? Mul just mulch. <laughs> And, and, and uh, Josh Stoner and Clay got busy on the Gaga ball pit. Google it if you don't know what Gaga ball is. It is a really fun game. It's like dodgeball from the waist down. It's, I don't know how to describe it. It's a lot of fun. And so I think Clay was so excited to do it because he's going to dominate. He's really, he's really good. Um, Matt's in town from Baltimore. And uh, it's always good to see him. He's in town for the weekend, hanging out, hanging out with us, Harley a little bit, you know, you know. And uh, this is uh, Tom and Twyla's first Sunday back from uh, their wedding. They're not in here, but that's all right. Hey, there he is. <laughs> it's Tom. Uh, and of course, if you know them, they're both serving this morning. Amen. Let's get into it. Um, this month, we're going to, and if we can hit the light on that so we can see it a little bit. This month, we're getting into a series called Identity in Christ. Identity in Christ. And let's talk about that for a moment while we're talking about, why are we going to talk about this? This is a continuation with the, the preaching collaboration group with our sister churches. Actually, uh, Mark Hang out of the Detroit Church of Christ uh, formed this series. And so thank you to him. Props out to him. Um, but this is key. And here's why it's key. Perspective shapes our behavior. Our perspective shapes our behavior. And, and we're all like, yes, because we just went through the Sermon on the Mount together. And that was like Jesus' whole thing. Our perspective shapes our behavior. So for example, let's talk about like our perspective of church. If we think of the church as like a restaurant, then we're going to end up treating it like a restaurant. We get upset when we don't get what we ordered. Right? We're just getting started. Hold on. <laughs> this is the beginning. If, we've, if we think of the church as like a movie theater, we get disappointed when we aren't entertained. We'll walk out, you know, and we'll end up treating it that way. If we, if we treat the church as, like, the, t the temple, um, like, we see the church as making us holy versus God's presence that makes us holy. And, like, the church didn't do this. Now, now I got this problem, the sin in my life. We're going to end up regarding it as that. If we think and perceive the church as a field, this is just a place where work needs to get done. This is just a field to get worked. We're all going to see it as such. Do you see how perception can maybe affect our behavior. Okay, now let's talk about marriage. The way we think about our marriage is this book called Sacred Marriage by Gary Thomas. He asks the question, is marriage created to make us happy or to make us holy? Your, your answer that, to that question will determine your behavior in a marriage. <laughs> yeah, we all get that. We all get that. The percep perception changes how you interpret and evaluate your own marriage. Now let's talk about ourselves. 
our perspective of ourselves shapes our behaviors, right? Think of how you act when you enter a room and you enter with one of these mindsets. Maybe you walk into a room and, and you, you think you perceive yourself as the smartest person in the room. How's that going to translate in the way you behave? Or flip it, maybe you come in and you think, I'm the least smart person here. And how that affects how you behave and interact with people. Yeah? We've been there. Or the way you enter a room when you're the oldest person. I have the most experience. I'm seasoned. Let me just look. That's my spot. You're right. Or you come in and you're the youngest person in the room, you know, trying to, trying to fit in. Or even playing a sport, maybe you, you go onto a team like you join like a rec league team and you just go in with the mindset, I'm the best person on this team. How do you think that's going to impact your team chemistry? Or even the, maybe even like I'm the worst person, like, oh, no, don't pass it to me. Like you keep passing it back, like Jackie Moon style, you just keep passing it back. That's a deep reference anyways. These are all seen. Our perspective matters because it always translates to our behavior. These things are seen, the way you treat others, the way you treat yourself. Our inner perspective, how we see self, how we see God, how we see others, that all manifests in our lives. It all manifests in our actions. And, and, and I think we like to think I can think one way and then live out a different way or act a different way, it doesn't work like that. What does this have to do with identity? Identity is all to do with how you perceive yourself, how you perceive others, how you perceive God. And if you've been around the Wichita Church of Christ for any period of time, you understand that identity is one of our theme things that we dig into. So I was excited when the collaboration group was like, this series is going to be about identity. I'm like, let's Go! So let's go. We're going to start off the series talking about deceived identity. Deceived identity. Fighting what Satan and the world tells us who we are. Now, heads up, I'm going to use a lot of Satan talk in this. Okay, let me say what I mean by that, because that could mean a lot of things, depending on how you heard that. So, Satan... I think this is really important. I don't want to go too deep, but this is really important. Satan is not a name. It is a title. Satan is not a name. It's a title. Sat the Satan is the, it translated as the accuser. The accuser. That's what that means. It's a title, not a name. It's a title. Are you with me? And I think in our lingo, our church lingo, that we just use Satan as more like a name, like a personified demon, pitchfork, that whole thing. No, it's the accuser. One that accuses someone of something false. Um, turn with me to Genesis 3. Wednesday was traditionally kind of the first uh, that we see of the accuser in the Bible. Genesis 3, it's the fall, and this interesting talking snake shows up. What's that about? <laughs> What's happening? Page 2 of the Bible, and you're like, this is weird. Okay. But and just so you can see this idea, the serpent is often regarded as being the first appearance of, this, of Satan, of the accuser. And think of accuser, and then listen to this. Uh, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat. Oh, I'm sorry, let's start at the beginning. Now, the serpent was more crafty 
than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made, he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Accusing you. Did you really hear that correctly? <laughs> the woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the, the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the accuser said to the woman, the serpent. So, accusing God of lying, right? For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil, accusing God of trying to hold out on humanity. And we can go more into the story from there, but do you get it? Do you see it? What's happening here? What is the serpent doing? He is accusing that's what he does. So as we have Satan talk, as I say Satan or Satan, because that's how you say it, think in your mind the accuser. Maybe I'll just say that. Maybe I'll just say the accuser. Okay? A little prep work there. You guys ready to dive in? Yeah. Awesome. This is really important. Okay. Deceived identity. Asking what we believe about ourselves can be a minefield, right? Because you really kind of end up with two, typically you end up with, kind of two polarized ends, like how someone views about themselves. Either they're really harsh and critical, almost like self-deprecating, they're like, I'm a no one, I'm nothing, I'm worth, you know, that voice comes out. Or it's like the opposite end, they're like, I'm flawless. Like, it's like overcompensating. Um, it, maybe it comes across as egotistical, right? Do you know what I mean? It's like one of those, <laughs> typically, you don't often come a across a person, they're like, well, um, that's in the middle. It's, it's typically on the ends, right? Is that your experience, or is that just me? And when you ask someone what they believe about themselves, um, I think of American Idol. You guys remember William Hung? Yes! Anyone want to sing it real quick? I'm just kidding. But, right? And it's not just, I don't want to pick on him, but there's kind of this motif on the show, and whether it's real or not, someone comes into the show thinking they're really good at singing, and you're listening, and then you're like, what is happening right now? <laughs> what is going on? And they, like I said, whether it's real or not, they, like, firmly believe that they can win this. And, and it's like, somebody lied to you. <laughs> All those times your mom's such a good singer. Like, <laughs> right? And just let's turn it on ourselves real quick. Have you ever been singing along to a song and the music stops? abruptly <laughs> and then you're like oh that's what I sound like <laughs> Woo! I think sometimes also we can kind of get these perceptions of ourselves that maybe aren't very accurate to who we are yes we have to battle lies false perceptions and misconceptions it's interesting in psychology now they call it imposter syndrome they do. Have you guys heard of that? It's you got this. Yeah, break it down, Alex. Break it down. So it's kind of like um, you got this inner voice that tells you like you're phony, you're fake. You're going to be found out. The people around you are going to find out that you're fake, that you're not really about what you're about, right? So it's like an alarm that's in your head. Kind of, right? <laughs> right. The Satan, the accuser. It's an inner voice that accuses you of being something that you're not and gets you to believe it. And when you believe it, you act on it. Does that not sound like Satan? <laughs> it's like we call it imposter syndrome. So what is really real is also really spiritual, family. We need to, we need to realize that. 
that this work of Satan, the accuser, is alive and well in humanity today. And it's not in overt acts of fire and pentagrams and like all the, you know, those Hollywood stuff. It's in these subtleties, these deep wounds in our hearts and in our minds that we come to believe. Yes? Does that make sense? We have to battle those things. Jesus is going to battle those things, which is what we're going to dive into today. You know, I've heard it said that there are three lies you have to overcome in life. Lies the world tells you, lies you tell the world, and lies you tell yourself. We've got to overcome those lies, but we've got to overcome those lies. There's really only one way. The lies the world tells you, the lies you tell the world, the lies you tell yourself. If you walk into a room that's dark, what's the only way to get rid of that darkness? You have to turn on a light. You can't tell the darkness to go away. You have to bring light into the situation. Enter Matthew chapter 4. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. We believe, and scripture says, that Jesus was a man in every way, and he faced every temptation that we face. So as we have this dialogue about identity and wrestling with who you are, know that Jesus did too. And this is in scripture where we see that really on display, Matthew chapter 4. Jesus had just been, he's, John the Baptist has prepared the way for him. He is, is stepping into his ministry, he's been baptized, and the Spirit leads him into a time of testing in the desert. Kind of like, all right, can you, which he can, remember who you are? All of God's people in the past, at some point in time, they forgot who they were. Jesus is going to show that you can. Matthew 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Has anyone ever fasted for any reason before? There's like no food. That's oh, the worst. It's the longest you've had to fast. Who's had to fast for like one day? Two days? Three days? Four days! I'm saying. <laughs> what is that like? What do you become like hyper aware of? <laughs> food! <laughs> That's the point. No, that's the point. That's the point. Jesus fasted from food for 40 days, right? And you can get into little arguments there like, well, is there water? Was there any other kind of sustenance? Whatever. Even, yeah, I don't think so. But even with that, no food for 40 days. He was deprived beyond deprivation. I go three hours in between meals and I'm about ready to throat punch somebody. <laughs> I was, yesterday at Love Your Building Day, I was about to have a moment. I'm like, okay, we worked. It's, it was time for lunch. Where are people at? Let's pray. I'm hungry. I just had copper oven. I had like a whole meal at copper oven earlier in the morning. 
When you fast for a long time, you're starving, you're empty, you're hurting, you're vulnerable. You have to reckon with your humanity and realize that you are dependent on something outside of yourself, which is the whole point of fasting, spiritually, right? You're dependent on something outside of yourself. You become hyper aware of that. You're like, okay, I get it, give me something. And we have to remember that Jesus as a man was tempted in every way that as we are. So imagine how he is feeling in the, in the wilderness, in the desert even. We fast in the air conditioning, y'all. We got cool water on tap. We're like, oh, this fast is horrible. And you're drinking like your glacier water or something. You're I think people in the world today are kind of in this, co- this condition of deprivation as well. No, I'm not talking about how that, but they are. People are deprived. People are deprived, they're starved for attention, for real relationships, real friendships, loyalty, true love, sacrifice. People are starving for that. People are deprived um, and they're empty from sin and guilt and shame. Think of the work that shame does to a person when it goes unchecked. People are hurting hurting emotionally, hurting spiritually. In other words, we're vulnerable. And the accuser enters the fray. That's exactly what the accuser does to Jesus. Jesus is vulnerable. He is deprived. And that's when the accuser enters the fray and asks Jesus, and he asks us today, who are you? Do you really believe that about yourself? If you've been starved, empty and hurting, you know you've heard the accuser's voice asking, if you were a child of God, then blank. If you really were a Christian, then why don't you have a boyfriend or a girlfriend? If if you're really God's child and he really cares about you, this sounds like Adam and Eve, right? If God really cared about you, then why don't you have this thing that you want? Why didn't you get that job or that position? Why did things work out that way? Why is marriage so hard? If you're really God's child and God really wants what's best for you, then why is this so hard? The accuser asks a starving Jesus, if you're the son of God, if you're the Messiah, make bread. He asks us too, if you're really part of God's kingdom, why aren't your needs getting met too? The accuser works like that in subtle ways that eat after you. It's like a caterpillar. Have you seen the time-lapse videos of a caterpillar eating a leaf? You're not going to see it in real time, but over time, you just... It's kind of like that. You know, I think in the last five years, we've seen a huge rise in something called demagoguery. A demagogue is someone who gains popularity by manipulating the feelings of people. They, they arouse emotions in people, passions and prejudices of people. In other words, they, they prey on people's lives. They try to motivate or manipulate by appealing to pleasure and pain. And it's, demagoguery's always been around, but I think it's really been on full display in, in recent time. It could be salesmen, 
could be preachers, it could be social influence, professor so-and-so on YouTube, right? Uh, it could be politicians, it could be authors, it could be, it, you, you get it, just people of influence. And they appeal to pleasure, they show off this lifestyle, the spoils of wealth, or they talk about your pain. Have you ever been hurt in this way? A demagogue speaks to your fear and offers a temporary solution. And I wonder for us, as God's chosen people, how often are we susceptible to the messaging of demagoguery? Are we aware of that even happening? Of us being manipulated based on our feelings, our place in life? We've got to see that. We've got to be aware the accuser, the accuser always appeals through these sorts of motivations. He's the ultimate demagogue. So how does Jesus respond? What can we learn? How does Jesus respond? He doesn't respond with his own opinion, his preference. He doesn't argue back. He clings to God's words. He clings to what has already been said because it is true. He says, man does not live on bread alone. In other words, Jesus says there's more to life than this. There's more to life than this. Jesus doesn't promise us no pain. He doesn't promise us um, get all the pleasure that we want. Instead, he gives us a reason to deny pleasure and to face our pain. Uh, Matthew 6, do you remember we were talking about the, the, the good eye, the healthy eye? It's really cool because we, we talked about that, and then my neighbors, that's like a part of their vernacular now. And now I'm like convicted because I hear them talk about it, and they're like just in conversation, they're like, man, are you having a healthy eye about that? And I'm just like, yikes. They're, they're like for real about it. It is awesome. But Matthew 6, verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. That light within you is darkness. How great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one or love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and mammon. Remember that when we talked about that a few weeks back? The good eye principle. We're talking about perception, how we perceive ourselves, how we perceive God. Let's take that practice of Jesus, the good eye principle. And just to recap, if you weren't here, there's this idea, there's this principle that to have a good eye means you have an eye of abundance, that you see the world, you see yourself, God, and others as a place where there is enough and you will be given if you just trust. The bad eye is the opposite. It's scarcity. There's not enough. I'm afraid of missing out. I've got I've to gather. I've got to get mine, right? And you see where that can lead to, right? What are the higher motivations in pain and pleasure? Joy, gratitude, purpose, love, inspiration, the bad eye, that eye of scarcity, 
pain and pleasure, it takes our focus away from these. The accuser wants you to be defined by your pains and your pleasures. He wants you to be defined by what you fear. Jesus defines us despite our pain, despite the pleasure we seek. Amen? Amen. That's how Jesus responds to what he wants in his deprivation. How do you respond? Back to Matthew chapter 4. Then the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand at the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you. And they will lift, up their, lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is also written, Don't put the Lord your God to the test. Great things occur on high ground. Anybody like to go hiking? Not a lot of people. Okay, okay. John, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, whoa! The Flint Hills, that's a lot of elevation. Right. I love I love I love walking outside. Right. I mean it's not necessarily for the challenge. I'm not like a trail runner. I just love being outside. There's something about being, especially in mountains, high places. Um man. Okay, I don't want to just geek out too much on it, but it's amazing. If you've been there, you've been there. There's no place like it. There's something about being on high ground. There's something about it, the perspective there's that word again, the perspective you get. You look around, you turn around to where you came from. You're like, oh, I can see where I came from. So small. Oh, that's where we're going. So far, you know, it just, it just gives you perspective. There's something emotional that happens to you on the high ground. It's like uh, Leonardo DiCaprio in, the Tit in Titanic where he's like, I'm the king of the world, right? Is that too old of a reference now? Okay, just, just a bad one. Okay, okay, it's like Obi-Wan Kenobi in his battle against Anakin, right? It's like, I, all right. The high ground. I'm falling flat on my references this morning. All right. That's all right. As a parent, if you have kids, if you have little siblings, you're always trying to prop up their self-esteem, where you should be, right? That's what we want to do. We want them to believe themselves and be confident. You want them to, to, to have those things, but yet when they have, you're welcome, when you have when they have a mountaintop experience, you want to kind of, you have this thought goes through your head, you're like, how are they going to respond? Is this going to give them a big head? Are they going to become super, like, egotistical now? Nobody, does that make sense? No? Will they be humble? What kind of perspective will this give them? We say all that to say, the accuser takes Jesus to a high point for a reason. There's something that happens to you when you're at a high point. You can look around. You're big. Everyone else is small. Everything else is small. It does something to us psychologically as people. We think we're untouchable. We're outside the rules. And what does the accuser say? He says, throw yourself down. That's a challenge. It's like he's saying, you're a child of God. God loves you. 
you should be free of negative consequences, right? Because that's what it means to be a child of God. You're free of negative consequences, right? No. <laughs> Resounding no. So first, the, satana, uh, uh, or the accuser appeals to Jesus' deprivation. Next, it seems that he looks to inflate some sense of entitlement in Jesus. Entitlement. When you feel like you can say or do whatever you want without fear of consequence. Entitlement. The accuser appeals to our sense of entitlement and prompts us to make some bad decisions, or rather decisions that are outside of who we are. Jesus responds. Again, does he respond with his own arguments? His own, what he heard someone say on YouTube that one time? That really good quote from a book? No, he goes to God's words. Don't put God to the test. He puts the relationship back in order. When you're in those high places, it's a rem- you've got to remember to keep yourself in order. Keep God in order. God is the tester. God is above. The only thing scripturally we can ever test God on is he says, try to outgive me. Try to outgive me. And you're still going to lose, is what he says. <laughs> That's the only place where we're allowed to test God, see if we can be a bigger giver than him. As children of God, our identity needs to be reaffirmed and encouraged, but also we need to build humility and self-awareness. And I've got to say this. I think it's a misconception when we look to the younger generation and, and we label them as entitled. One, that's a pattern throughout history. Go back and look. The older generation always points to the younger. They're entitled. You know what entitlement really comes from? It comes from people who are not self-aware. Because self-awareness, true self-awareness, will result in humility. That's how you end up with older people who are also entitled. It's a lack of self-awareness. The Satan accuses Jesus, says, you're owed this. Since you're the son of God, God owes you this. But Jesus doesn't fall for it because he knows who he is. Let's go back to Matthew. Matthew chapter 4, picking up in 8. Again, the accuser took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I'll give to you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. I don't know if he yelled it. I don't know if he was maybe just like, he's like whispering, like barely maybe coming out of his mouth. He's like, just get away from me. Worship the Lord your God and only. I, I don't know what Jesus was feeling in this moment, the intensity, I don't know. And then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. He takes Jesus, the accuser takes Jesus and shows him the splendor of the world. This is what the world's got to offer. Splendor, brilliant and gorgeous in appearance, grandeur, glory. Have you ever traveled somewhere that has really old architecture? And you're like, oh my gosh, it's so beautiful. People can make some cool stuff. I'm just saying. Like, and we do that in the image of God, I believe, oftentimes. We can make some cool stuff. The accuser wants us to define ourselves by the things that we have. 
the things that we have. He tells Jesus, you can have all this. For me, because I'm not Jesus, it's smaller. He's like, Ethan, you can have like this small thing, like this thing here. 2009 Ford Escape Hybrid. No. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> he wants us to define, but listen to this. He wants us to define ourselves. He wants us to find our identity and what we have. Girlfriend. A job or a particular career. A house. Think of that. How much identity people put into their houses. I'm not talking about the people. I'm talking about the structure. We get that, right? And even children. I think C.S. Lewis talks about that in The Great Divorce. I'll just drop that out there. Go read it. It's like a two-hour read. Just go read it. The accuser wants worship. No one would ever say we directly worship Satan, right? I've never taken a goat into a circle of candles and did the thing, right? Like, that's what Satan worship is, right? Right? That's what, or at least what we've been led to believe. I don't, you know, what is Satan? Worship is to just simply bow down. It's to be devoted, to be subservient, and to honor something. That's worship. Do you worship the voice of the accuser in you? Do you bow down to that voice? Do you believe it? Do you become subservient to it? Have you taken that, the accuser, into, okay, this is just who I am now, I guess. I've come to believe this. I think it's one of those important things we've got to break down kind of in our churchianity is what we nicknamed it, right? Churchianity is like, oh, Satan worship, and we have like these very vivid, like weird images. We're like, ooh. No, this Satan worship is believing those voices those lies. You're bowing down to them. Do you, do, you, do you believe that? Do you believe that? Jesus says to only worship God. I need a volunteer. You did last time. Come on up. I need two pins. Can I have two pins or pencils? Have you been to the optometrist before? Or you got glasses, I'm assuming. Okay. <laughs> If you want to stand, stand right here, and then, yeah, 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 okay. And then look at me. I'm not going to, no, why would I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to touch you at all, okay. See these pins? Okay, the red pin is God, all right, who God says you are, right? This is the accuser, the world, who they say you are. Follow both of them with your eyes. So I want, I, want, I want your left eye to follow my, the God pin, and I want your right eye to follow the accuser pin. Okay? Ready? You know, sometimes, you're doing a good job here. All right? I really do feel like an eye doctor. So sometimes we can, we trick ourselves into thinking, oh, I can look at both things. I can look at God and... I can listen to God and the accuser. I can do both. And we're, you know, right? And sometimes, though, most times, God and the world, they don't go in the same direction, right? They don't tell us the same thing. 
And so we're like, oh, well, look, I'm doing, I'm doing both, right? Uh-oh, you're going to go to the eye doctor. Your eyes aren't crossing. <laughs> right? But go ahead and follow both. Follow both. Okay. Cross them. Cross them. I got to go closer. Okay. Now, now, keep looking. But what does the world around you look like? Can you see people clearly? No, things get a little blurry and fuzzy. When you try to follow both, it's all right. Just, just watch. Just watch and listen. You can follow both for a time, but things get blurry. It's hard to navigate. Now follow both. <laughs> you can't, you have to, put your, and your eyes are looking back. You see her eyes? They're flicking back and forth. They're like, I don't know which one to follow. Which one do I look at, right? There you go. Now you're following the God pen. You're doing the right thing. Oh, <laughs> oh, right? So there you go. Do you, okay, do you see, though? Do you, good job, Riley. One more volunteering, and then you're done for life. Like, there you go. Do you, do you see that? Do you get it? We think we can listen to both, to God and the accuser. We think we can look at both. You cannot. Jesus just said it. You can't serve two masters. You can't believe what God has said about you and what the accuser says about you. You can't do it. We can think it works for a while, but in the end, it never works. Whose voice do you listen to? And then ask yourself this question. Whose voice do you really listen to? The key word Jesus says is to worship God only, only, only. The Shema. Hear, O Israel. The Lord is our God. The Lord. Yahweh is our God. Nobody else. Not Baal. None of those other gods. Nobody else. Only Adonai. He's our God. God is one. Only him. That's how the Shema prayer starts. He is our God. How does the Lord pray, Lord's prayer start? Right? Our Father who is in heaven. Right? Hallowed be thy name. What does that mean? Our Father in heaven. Our Father, you are God. Hallowed be your name. Your name is holy. There's no one else like you. You alone are God. Those prayers start with us having to remember, God, you alone I serve. Nobody else, nothing else. Why would those two prayers both start with that same idea, that same thought? One of the reasons we battle our identity is because our devotion's divided. We have fragmented our faith due to our own lack of fidelity to God. The accuser doesn't, stop to ask, doesn't ask us to stop worshiping God. Rather, he asks that we worship him in addition to God. There's the Disney plus factor again, right? Oh, you can keep going to church. You can keep doing the things that you're serving. Like, oh, no, please, actually keep doing that. Just do this also. That's how that works. That's what that looks like. Only God matters. Deceived identity. The accuser tried to target Jesus' identity in those three ways. What, what Jesus wanted when he was deprived tried to trick him into some entitlement, what he thought he should be owed. 
and then and then his 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 greed, his need for things, his desire for things, the splendor of the world. Who do you believe you are? Who are you? The accuser in the world tries to fill the vacuum of that question, and that silence right there. I guarantee several of us, me included, those the negative thoughts came. The imposter syndrome, the accuser, those thoughts came. But we've got to be aware to this. Satan tries to define you through your pain. Jesus defines you through your purpose. Pursue God's purpose in your life. The accuser wants us to be impulsive. Jesus wants us to trust God. Satan gets us to worship the things of the world. Only Jesus is Lord. What's competing with your heart's devotion to God today? Don't worry, this isn't the end of the series, right? And if we had to end here, we'd end here and we'd do great things with it. Yes? We're going to continue talking about this. Next, we'll talk about achieved identity. But I think it's important to reflect on Jesus in this time and what he just went into. And then do you remember what happens after that testing? He goes out and he serves people, and then he gets into the Sermon on the Mount. Peace this. After battling with his own identity in a way that no other human <laughs> nobody could have endured that, right? He's been tested in ways we can never imagine. After battling with his own identity, he reminds the people around them of who they are. The Sermon on the Mount, right after the Beatitudes, what does Jesus pause to say? Before we go on, you need to remember this. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. How important is identity to Jesus? It's everything. It's everything. Jesus not only revealed God in his own life, but he also reveals who we are in the process. It's almost like Jesus' yoke, love God, love your neighbor as yourself. It's almost like they always are in tandem. <laughs> In order to see God, we see more in ourselves. For our time of communion, we're going to do a, a reading of scripture in 1 Peter chapter 2. And as you listen to this reading, consider the battle of identity that Jesus went through. Consider the battle identity you have been through, and you probably are going, in, going through right now. Consider, consider the battle of identity that the world is going through. And listen to these words, okay? 1 Peter chapter 2. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, evil, and slander of every kind, like newborn babies crave spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. 
as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, you, y'all, are like living stones being built into a spiritual household to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. For in scripture it says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a precious, a chosen and precious cornerstone. The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you, y'all who believe, this stone is precious. Amen? That cornerstone is precious to us. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected have become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble, a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they're destined for. They're listening to the wrong voice. But you, y'all, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are. You are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, and now you have received mercy. Let's go to God and pray and have our time of communion together. Father, we come before you together and we thank you, God, for these you are statements. We need that. We look at Jesus. We look at him in the way that he said no to the deceived identity that the accuser was trying to offer him. He knew who you said he was and he trusted it and believed it, Father. Help us to be the same. And help us to be the same, not so that we can be rescued from pain and pursue pleasure, but help us to do the same so that we can bring others into your light. So that they can receive healing and restoration and we can show the world that you are different. You are holy, Father. We think of Jesus even on the cross. He's looking out for other people, reminding them of who they are. Help us, Father, as we go through the highs, the mountaintops, and the lows to not only remember who we are individually, but to remind others who they are, to encourage, to empower. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.